0: Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Uh, super excited today to have both Alan Dean Foster and Michael Kogi on the show. Um, both were previous guests, and we're excited to have them back on to talk all things writing their careers, writing for Star Wars, and kind of talk about what it means to to be a Star Wars writer and how that has changed over time. So how are you guys doing? Alan, you want to go ahead first?
1: I'm doing well, and it's 78 degrees here, and it's not raining, and something weird is going on with the weather, but it's a good weird as far as I'm concerned.
0: What about you, Mike?
2: Uh, doing great here. Uh, I, I know Alan has—you you have a lot of cats, don't you, Alan? Uh, Six I cats. I have a— I, Six cats. Yeah. So I have I have a dog here. So if you hear a little bit of scampering, that's so that's Percy in the background.
1: <laughs> yeah. As long as he's not chasing my cats from where you are yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with canine temporal cat chasing. And I'm not up for that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: he loves to chase, loves to chase squirrels.
0: He's a uh, poodle uh, schnauzer mix. So we will not condone dog on cat violence on this show. <laughs> no, let, let it be known. So let's, just for perspective, um, where are you guys based right now? Alan, I want to say you're in Arizona? I'm in Prescott, Arizona,
1: which right. is a wonderful town, same altitude as Denver, but because it's further south, the weather is better. And uh, have everything I could want here, except the beach. Uh, plenty of be- Well, actually, no. Plenty of beach, but no ocean. There it is.
2: I'm here in uh, Los Angeles, actually, in the uh, sleepy mountain town of Sierra Madre. And uh, I we used to live actually near where Alan used to live when he was when he was here in Los Angeles uh, in Santa Monica. So I, I know we've talked about, uh, you know, L.A. And L.A. he was you were in L.A. in the 70s, weren't you, Alan?
1: Yeah, I was. In fact, I was at UCLA in the late 60s. But I think uh, talking to people, it seems like everybody on the planet spent some time in Santa Monica one time
0: or another. It's really
1: strange. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's true. It's Most,
0: must be the merry-go-round. There's a story there somewhere. It's weirdly the center of the universe. No, we're in New York City, kind of moderating from over here. Uh, so anyone listening, uh, excuse us for any sort of Skype uh, or Wi-Fi, uh, audio errors, um, as we're all kind of communicating from different points. So appreciate uh, patience on that. So let's get into it. Um, we're here to talk writing. We're here to talk Star Wars writing. We're here to talk your own writing. Um, first off... Let's talk how you two know each other. You're both writers. How did your kind of relationship, your friendship, kick off? Like, have you met at cons? Have you met, you know, online? What does that look like? Mine?
2: Well, I, I can I can start this out for you because I did a profile on him <laughs> Star Wars Insider, and so I met him, you know, as a, as, as a journalist actually, and uh, we I interviewed him I think uh, twice, uh, once to do kind of a retrospective on his career, and another to do a uh, the beginnings of the Star Wars universe where uh, I went down to Prescott uh, or, and I, I don't, where's the ASU? That's where your papers are stored, aren't, isn't that right, Alan?
1: That's in Tempe which is part of the Tempe, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, so they, they had me go down to Tempe and, and I looked through the Alan Dean Foster collection and it's pretty amazing, guys, because you get to see his uh, his early works. I mean, I, there are boxes upon boxes of his, of Alan's first drafts of Every, you know, every novel, including Star Wars and all these deleted or expanded scenes. Uh, then there's, you know, I think like the black hole aliens stuff uh, and his original novels, the just uh, the Commonwealth stuff. It's it's really marvelous. So I was able to spend an afternoon at the University of Arizona making a lot of copies. And then I drove down to Prescott with a friend and met Alan. Was, uh, he was very. Very welcome, and he had had me in his home for for an hour or two, and uh, we talked and uh, showed me all his books and his weightlifting trophies, and we we had a really good time. And so I've seen him at convention since, and uh, we always managed to talk and converse. and And then we also had the strange opportunity of both adapting The Force Awakens, uh, because you know I'm a, in addition to having done work for The Insider, I'm a, I'm a novelist too. So I did the uh, junior novel adaptation, the young adult novel adaptation for The Force Awakens, and he did the adult novel. And uh, we had a little bit of collaboration in there. In fact, I used parts of his novel uh, in my junior novel as a way to kind of bridge the continuity and make things uh, match.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm the other end of what Mike just said, Uh, (laughs) uh, which is a sneaky way of getting out of saying much. But uh, it was interesting when I saw that Mike... uh, was doing the uh, the junior version. I thought, well, that's easy. Everything will work fine. i Not to worry about anything. And sure enough, that's the way it turned out. That doesn't happen very often,
0: but it's really nice when it does. He said he didn't need much help. What's the other flip of that coin? Someone who kind of would have need a little bit more hand holding a little bit more. Like, what's that look oh, like?
1: It can, cut, it can cut both ways. Years ago, I did uh, I did the the book portion of a wonderful illustrated book. Uh, By Jim Christensen, called The Voyage of the Basset. And uh, Jim's work is just phenomenal and reminds you a lot of uh, uh, late 19, well, uh, European classic painters. And it was a pleasure to wrap a story around them. There was already a story there, in the sense that a lot of the paintings that Jim had done over the years had been uh, worked together to provide kind of a loose narrative. And I just kind of provided a real narrative and tightened it up. And I was real pleased with it. And everybody, seemed real pleased with it, and I you know, put it aside and went back to work on other projects and found out that they had hired somebody else, named I think Renwick St. James, to rework my work, perhaps because what I did was a good school adult, and the publisher was aiming at a younger audience, and basically it was uh, an extraordinary dumbing down of everything I'd done. And one thing I learned early on, because one of my two principal influences was Karl Barks, who wrote and drew all the great Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck comic books, was that you don't talk down to a young audience. If they have problems with the word, they go look up the word. Problems with The concept, they ask an adult about the concept. But treating them like a bunch of, uh, you know, babbling, milk, sodden idiots is not the way to uh, get them to improve either their sense of story or their sense of art. And nobody ever asked me for, for that. I had no control over it. It wasn't my property. But you know, at least asking—is it okay if we rewrite all your stuff? That would that would have been a polite way to go. So that was a project I wasn't very happy with. Whereas with Star Wars, when I heard Mike was involved with the junior version of Force Awakens, didn't work. Didn't have a concern from the get-go. So you can cut both ways.
2: Well, that's very nice to hear. And, and, and in fact, you know, adapting the Force Awakens—what the, the way they had Lucasfilm had me do it—is you know I had access to the script for a little bit. I took copious notes, uh, and then uh, Alan had finished one of the drafts of his novel uh, as I was working on my novel. So I I also had Alan's novel to to look at, and he had some additional scenes and additional dialogue, and I basically said, hey guys, is it okay that I use some of Alan's dialogue because I really like it? And they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. And I was like, is Alan going to mind? But he he didn't mind. So it it was really nice to... When when I when I talked to you, Alan to, to hear that you were you were cool with it and uh, and I, and I think what Alan said about writing toward a a young adult audience is is exactly right. I mean I was a teacher for a long time and if you want kids to 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 read you you can't dumb it down. They don't want dumb stuff. They want what what everybody else is is uh, watching or reading. You know, just in a way that they can understand it. So I might not use five dollar words, but in fact, when I don't use those big words, sometimes it's harder to come up with a very uh, a focused and uh, in, in disciplined way of writing that sentence or that concept for kids. It, it really improves your writing, you know, uh, in, in a way you, you get you get very strong declarative sentences. You really work on the language and the prose. Uh, I I work very hard on the prose to make it you know, both readable, but also, you know, it has a rhythm to it, a, a poetry to it. And I think kids, kids deserve that. And then, and then if they find a word that they don't know, they will look about it up because it's Star Wars. I mean, it's Star Wars. If, if Star Wars doesn't get kids to read, I don't know what will, you know, and if it doesn't get them curious about vocabulary or scientific concepts or, uh, morality, uh, then, uh, we're, we're doomed, I guess, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's the perfect vehicle, especially to get you know young boys and girls to uh, to really read and experience art, and they should they should be given the best a platform and material uh, to do it with. So, um, I mean, I mean that's my approach.
0: Has anyone ever read both? Have you ever heard of someone that's like, hey, I read both the, you know the the adult version, and the young adult version, and is there a difference experientially from that person's perspective? Would they take away different things? Is the continuity the same? Like, what is it? difference in the meat and bones of these two types of storytelling.
1: I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, after I did the novelization of uh, Aliens, the second film, uh, time went by, and I, had a, I knew there was a young adult version, which I expected, had nothing to do with that, but I had a, a fan write me and say, uh, you know, why did you change all the dialogue from the Marines? The Marines in, in your book, you know, they don't swear. They say things like "gosh," and you know, don't uh, they, they, the Queen Alien doesn't say "get away," or excuse me, Ripley doesn't say "get away from her, you bitch" to the Queen Alien. She says "get away from her, you." And I thought, what? This is the adult version now, not the not the young adult version. And I went back and I looked at a published version, of the, you know, a copy of the book, and sure enough, somebody at Warner Books had bowdlerized the entire manuscript. <laughs> Wow. So, Pat, of course, I wasn't asked because they probably knew what my reaction would be. And you know, I went through, and I was, these are these are space marines, and you got them th- saying things like "Gosh," and you completely killed the strongest line in the entire screenplay, and you just throw up your hands at stuff like that because, of course, teenagers would never use these words that, that are used in the movies. So we we obviously have to take them out so we don't offend. You know, however many, however many hundred families or dozen families or the one weirdo, you know, uh, sleeping in the, in the basement of a library in, in, in history, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, but uh, they never tell you when they do stuff like that. They never tell the author because they know what the author's reaction is going to be. It's going to be explosive. And so they just go ahead and do it, and then you have a fait accompli, and there's nothing you can do except steam quietly.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh I did they're, they're too good to jump off what Alan was saying. There was a, there was a line that was taken out in in uh, my junior novel and in the movie Finn goes uh you're a hell of a pilot, I think to Poe. It's it's a line like that. And it's he in the junior novel they made it heck of a pilot. So, and somebody noticed that and po- posted it on a comment board somewhere and they were, you know, they were I don't know, making some rude comment, but there are a lot of Star Wars fans because they're so completist, that read everything. And so they will read the junior novel and watch the film and then also read the comic book and they will read the adult novelization and they'll experience the story in, in, in different iterations and adaptations. And, and in fact, my, my book is different than Alan's in the sense that usually Alan will take a point of view of one character, and I'll take a point of view of another character from, uh, you know, the same scene. Or, he has scenes that I don't have, and I have scenes that he doesn't have. I have Chewie. What happens to Chewie after Han dies? Chewie goes on a tear. He gets very angry. Uh, I have some things like that, you know, that I'm, you know, really proud of, that aren't in the movie, that aren't in the script, that aren't in Alan's book, but are unique to the Junior novel, and Alan has, he has this great explanation of how the Star Killer base works, and how it. Takes uh, dark dark matter and, and is, is that right, Alan?
1: It, you, you, no, that's uh, right. Yeah. That took some, that took some considerable research into subjects that I wasn't entirely comfortable with, but was comfortable with putting on paper because I figured there were probably eight people on the planet who really understood what I was talking
0: about. <laughs> and, uh,
1: so I didn't have to worry about any real criticism, even from those fans who delve deeply into such things.
0: Yeah, and, and I used
2: Alan's explanation when uh, Han, Han looks up, he's on Otakudana, oh, which is Maz, Maz's castle, and he looks up into the skies and he sees a planet blow up. And I said, well, you can't really watch a planet blow up, even if you're in the same solar system, you know, simultaneous as it happens. So I, I said, you, maybe you see this, uh, you work this thing out through hyperspace and dark energy and dark matter, and that's you know how Han sees what he sees. And I kind of riffed off Alan's explanation for the Starkiller base.
1: No, that's great. That's, it's wonderful when you can trade back and forth with stuff like that, especially when it's not in the movie anyway.
0: Absolutely. And it becomes its own canon in itself. Let's talk the writing process. Um, we'll take a little break from Star Wars, and we'll, we'll go uh, back to it in a little bit. From each of your perspectives, where does the inception of an idea come from?
1: Mike, you want to go first this time?
2: Sure. I mean, I I was just finishing an outline for, uh, uh I, I'm a screenwriter too. So I, I, I do, uh, you know, I write screenplays and comic books and, uh, I have, I have so many ideas. Uh, I, you know, the, the other day, the last week I made up a, a list of 20 ideas for my next project. And then I, you know, I settled on one and then I had this, I spent this week outlining it, breaking down the outline, figuring out the story. Uh, and yeah, and kind of, I don't know where the inception for ideas comes. It sometimes comes from, you know, reading books or something in your life or something that you're interested in. Um, that, I mean, that's, it comes from, from all over for me. I, there's never, I mean, all those ideas, I'll never be able to write all of them. So it's, it's a process of weaning what you can do with the time that you have. And, you know, Alan's a master storyteller here and he's written, I know, countless novels. <laughs> Uh, So I'm always amazed at his productivity and his his ability to, you know, just, he's just written so much and so many good books uh, that it's very impressive.
1: Thanks, Mike. Um, I get a lot of my ideas from my travels. Sometimes I'll get a whole book out of it, like into the out of, uh, and sometimes I'll just get a character or a series of characters who bear no relation, the real people that they're based on bear no relation to one another, but I'll be able to work them into a book. Uh, this is an example. When my wife and I were on our honeymoon, we didn't have much money. We stayed at the oldest hotel in Kuala Lumpur as part of the trip, the Majestic Hotel, which was built by the Japanese in 1937. And it was kind of in its, kind of in its last days. It's since been resurrected, which is very nice. And there weren't a lot of employees there, but there was a uh, the head waiter in the restaurant. It was a six-foot-tall Chinese gentleman one of the most distinguished-looking gentlemen I've ever seen. And I took a picture of him, and I never forgot him. And many years later, when I was writing a book uh, called Catch-A-Lot, and I needed a tall, distinguished Chinese industrialist, I used him as the model. Uh, That was just something that stuck in the back of my mind. Sometimes I'll get a landscape. uh, Sometimes uh, a book like Drowning World is actually the two alien cultures. One is based on the culture of Fiji. And the other, well, they're both based on the culture, you know, in Fiji right now. And the world is based on a place in Brazil called Manurua. This all comes about as a result of travels. times, I'll just be sitting around and an idea will, as the cliche goes, pop into my head. My current book, Relic, is about the last human being reportedly in the, in the galaxy. just came about because I was sitting around feeling kind of lonely, feeling a bit like a relic one of these days. And I thought, you know, what if, what if you, what if you were the last human being alive, anyplace, out of billions and billions? You know, what would you, what would you do? How, how would you react? What would happen if a bunch of aliens came along after we had never encountered any aliens and and took care of you? And the whole book came out of that. So ideas come from all over the place. Of course, the thing writers do best uh, is uh, the thing writers always do best is find ways to avoid writing. So. It's not so much a question of getting the idea, as Mike says, as a question of sitting down in front of the computer or the dictaphone, or whatever, and actually making a story out of it. Lots of people have great ideas. The difference between them and people who become writers is that people who sit down and make a story out of the ideas, those are the ones who are writers.
2: Yeah, I mean, Alan probably has this too. So many people come up to me and they say, oh, I have this great idea. You can just write it for me. And uh, you know you'll you'll
1: you'll miss
2: no and, and it's like thank you so much. But I I I will have to say writing is the hardest hardest work I've ever done in anything. And uh, sometimes even writing an email is difficult. And it and it doesn't seem to get any easier. I, I don't know if Alan finds it easy, but uh, you know it, it, it's always a cha- it's always a challenge. And uh when you're when you're you have some really good days where it's just you know it's just flowing out of you and other days it's a struggle to to get a couple sentences down and and you're you're sitting there and you're just you're you're focused and you're just you're frustrated you don't know what the problem is but i guess that's you know it's part of the part of the the job and and, and you just got to force your way through those and those days and yeah you have pump out the next day
0: so
1: george orwell said that anybody who wants to be a writer is certifiable. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, you know, Alan said, yeah, it's hard to actually sit down and start writing. So let's talk process. Um, What are your processes and how do they compare when it comes to sitting down and actually writing? Um, Whether it's the applications you use or whether it's the approach and the outlining. Alan, do you want to go first? Well, I've been doing this for a long
1: time. And it's kind of funny. I actually started by dictating my rough drafts into a handheld tape recorder, for those of you who remember tape. Uh, And then I would give it to a typist to transcribe. Drove her nuts because I was writing science fiction, so there were a lot of made-up words. And then computers came along. And I didn't really see why I needed to deal with one because I could talk faster than I could type. And I finally started playing around with one. And as soon as I found out that I could write a 400-page book and go back and change the name of the 63 appearances of a minor character to change their name, by pressing a couple of keys, I was sold on computer. Now I do everything on a computer. I get up in the morning, I take care of the household chores, I feed the six cats and the one dog. Uh, I go out to my study and I sit down in front of the computer and I read as much news as I possibly can from around the world because I know as soon as I've finished reading the news, I've probably got to try and write something. And I keep staring at the computer and doing other things to keep myself from turning into a statue. And sooner or later, my fingers start moving over the keys and words appear on the screen. And once that gets going, I'll tell myself, well, I'll just do one page today. And I inevitably, once I get, once it gets flowing, as Mike says, I inevitably do a lot more than just one page. But you have to make yourself sit in front of whatever your medium is and stay there until something happens. Because if you keep getting up to go get a drink or do the shopping or do the laundry or pet the cat, you will never get anything done.
2: Yeah, that's that, that's kind of a mirror of what I do. Uh, you, you go through the the basic stuff first, and you know, going through the news is. Uh, Alan actually sounds sounds a lot like Arthur C. Clarke, who was like a news junkie. Uh, he would he basically did the same thing. He would read the news until he couldn't read the news anymore, and then and then he would finally sit down and 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 get to get to writing, uh, and it's. Um, uh, we, you know, there's, there's, I don't know if it's procrastination or just preparation, but, uh, when you get your focus, it's too, you need to stay in that focus for as long as you, you can. And little disruptions like phone calls or emails, buzzing or you know text messages that can really disrupt things. So I, you know, sometimes I set timers where, you know, I, I don't check email for two hours or I don't, um, Check my phone, you know unless it's an emergency uh, just just so I can stay in in, in the space and i I've also gone sometimes i'll I'll take a pad of paper out and and just write on that pad of paper you know and there's you know you're it's nice to kind of be away from the computer because we're on the computer all day long and you know it's exhausting um you know and and if if you had a job too where you, you know you have a day job where you're on the computer and then you come home and you want to write and you're back on the computer i mean that's that's pretty, that's pretty rough.
1: It's interesting. I, uh, you mentioned Arthur. I was visiting Arthur, and I asked him that same question one time. I said, what do you doing you know, if you get stuck? And he said, I put on John Williams' music from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so that always gets me going.
2: Wonderful. I, I want to I hear about this visit, uh, Alan. I know this is a little <laughs> off the topic, but uh, I want to hear about this visit to uh, Arthur C. Clarke.
1: Well, I've met Arthur a couple of times at conventions, and I happen to be uh, – I was in Sri Lanka, I was going diving in Maldives, and he said, let me set everything up for you, which he did, and then I visited him at his house, and I think the thing he was most, in Colombo, I think the thing he was most proud of, because he kept mentioning it, was there was only one of two houses, private homes in Colombo, that had a private elevator, because of course he wasn't very mobile, and the first thing he insisted on was that uh, I take a shower and put on, I forget what they call the Sri Lankan version of a sarong, but it's very comfortable, and I managed to keep it on the whole time without it falling off, which was good. But his study was just this long room. He had a very early computer, of course, and the walls were decorated with souvenirs of his career, and not souvenirs of my career or your career, but things like, you know, signed pages from Russian cosmonauts and things like that. Very impressive. And the first thing he said to me when I walked in, after I'd had my shower and, and clothes changed, was he said, come here, I want you to listen to something. And I'm like, you know, I'm halfway around the world. I'm in Arthur Clark's study with Arthur Clark. I really don't want to listen to a radio broadcast because that's what he had. And he said, did you know that Orson Welles and H.G. Uh, Wells once met one time? And I said, no. He said, did you know that there's a recording of the radio broadcast? And I said, no and he proceeded to play me this 7 minutes of Orson Welles and HG Wells who happened to be in San Antonio Texas at the same time and it's as clear as day and it's hilarious because here's the extremely young Orson Welles acting like a fanboy <laughs> in the presence of the immortal HG Wells and HG Wells kind of talking like a Robert Heinlein Isaac Asimov father figure from on high being very pleasant and polite and trying to alleviate this poor kid's embarrassment and self-consciousness saying things like, I understand you're working on this interesting kind of movie in Hollywood. And of course, he's talking about Citizen Kane, which Wells was working on at the time. And so I learned right away whatever Arthur C. Clarke says you should listen to, you should listen to. And we went on. He insisted I sign his guest book, Arthur. And I'm looking in his guest book, and here's Elizabeth Taylor, and here's uh, Here's Prince Charles, and you know what the heck am I doing in here? And, <laughs> uh, I did see though that you know, and I don't think this will bother him too much. Uh, Steven Spielberg has really bad handwriting. Interesting. Yes, uh, mine is worse. So, uh, <laughs>
0: what about you, Mike?
2: I haven't been in Arthur C. Clarke's uh, colombo apartment, uh, <laughs> but I
1: have been in my imagination.
2: You know what I mean? And uh, I, I think you know, it's, it's it's just a wonderful story to hear. Um, I mean, I, I, he's, you know, one of the grandmasters of science fiction. And, uh, and Alan's, you know, a peer. So it's, it's, it's really, really amazing to hear that. Uh, and I had HG. Well, by the way, you know, Orson Welles was, was 26 when he was making Citizen Kane, 24 or 26. And to think about somebody of that young age making such, you know, such great, great work. I think he was like 24 or 23 when he, when he did uh, Les Miserables and uh, World of the War of the Worlds on the radio, uh, you know, it's just, it's just pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, I always regarded myself because of when I started doing this as kind of a bridge between the, the early days of at least American and British science fiction and, and today. And so I tried to meet as many of these people as I could. I, I remember one, I've got lots of stories, but we'll get off the subject. <laughs> I remember one time asking, you know, talking to Robert Block about Lovecraft And I mentioned Cthulhu, and he said, no, no, that's wrong. That's not how I said it. I don't remember how I said it. And he said it correctly for me. He said, it's pronounced Cthulhu. So I was, you know, young and cocky and stupid. And I said, well, how do you know that's how it's pronounced? And he said, I asked Lovecraft. So
2: (laughs) there's your... Yeah, well, you know, I I remember from interviewing you, Alan, and and doing your profile, one of the things... It wasn't one of your first pieces at UCLA you submitted. You uh, was a Cthulhu piece, is that right?
1: My my first sold story, which August Derleth bought, not the first published one, but the first story I sold it was called Some Notes Concerning a Green Box, and it was a, a Lovecraftian story. And my fourth story, The Horror on the Beach, was also a Lovecraftian story. And then I got away into other things, but I still do Lovecraft occasionally. I did a game, a Lovecraftian game for a French company called The Moaning Words uh, a little while back. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it started It started with Lovecraft, and I was lucky enough to meet people like and know people like Robert Bloch and E. Hoffman Price, whose life was much more interesting than any of his good stories, and L. Sprague de Camp and people like that So, well, you know, talking to Sprague de Camp, what was Robert E. Howard really like, because de Camp at least, it's just, you feel like living history. A quick digression, for the next time any of anybody goes on YouTube, there's a guy named Guy Jones, G-U-Y Jones, and he specializes in speed correcting and adding sound effects to really, really old motion picture movie bits. And he has stuff from like the Paris Exposition of 1900 and on and on. And there's one thing he has that he did with uh, some very early sound film from 1929. Some people went out with sound cameras and interviewed really old people. So there's one brief segment, because they're all brief, of a guy in 1929, in sound, interviewing a 103-year-old woman who was born in 1836. And, you're thinking, and they're asking things like, you know, what do you eat? To what do you attribute your long life? And what you really want them to say is, you know, did your parents ever meet George Washington? That kind of thing. <laughs> Because her the person's parents were probably alive at the time of the American Revolution. It's just this extraordinary contact that you can occasionally find with the past that really brings it alive.
0: Alan, you talked about bridging the gap between uh, two different generations of writers. Um, obviously, you got your start writing a little bit earlier than uh, Mike did. Um, has the process of writing a Star Wars novel changed over time?
1: Well, the characters are still the characters. <laughs> They write the same way as they did in 1976. But the process of getting your work approved is very much changed. When I did the novelization first film and then the first book, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, I turned them into George, and George read them and came back and said, this is okay, and in this book I want you to take one thing out, and otherwise it's fine. That was it. Then when I did The Approaching Storm, I had to go up to the ranch, as they say, Skywalker Ranch, north of San Francisco. And there was a committee, and the committee dissected everything that I wrote and made some suggestions, which I would defend or agree with, depending on how reasonable I thought they were. And then I resubmitted the manuscript, and then they went over it again. And then it was finally accepted. Nowadays, it's uh, there's a giant committee plus corporate oversight. And I understand that there are billions, literally billions of dollars involved. And everyone is very, very careful with canon and timelines because they have to be. Those things didn't exist in the beginning, so there was no reason to obsess over them. So in that respect, it's much more, the final product is much more the product of a committee than the product of uh, an individual person and one person reading it and okaying it.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I I know uh, having been I was I did I was an editorial intern at Lucasfilm uh, right when the Phantom Menace, so I worked a lot with Lucas Books at the beginning, and uh, you know I, I saw the the general committee process that Alan Allen was talking about, and then you know now as 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 a writer, you have to get approved by the you know, story group, different layers of editors, you know, both your your publisher. For my, for me, it's for Alan. It's Del Rey. For me, it's Disney. Lucasfilm Press. Then you have your uh, your editor, and then you have the story group, and uh, you you really work hard to to make sure you please, you got to please all those people. But you know, there are there are moments where you you defend your 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 suggestions and your additions, uh, and you just got to know which battles battles to pick. You know, what what are you willing to uh, to you know, die on, Duh. and you know that they, they there's wiggle room there. They understand that. That's why they don't want just a robot writing stuff. They want to create a creative voice. Uh, so they're they're willing to go with you and and let, and let you be creative. I, I never really had a had too much of a problem, uh, but you, you, it's it's you know you have to give a little bit, and and they will give a little bit
1: too. It's funny. I when I did the Force Awakens, uh, there were a number of things that I put in there but they left, and there were a number of things that I put in there that they took out. And I, while I could see the rationale behind at least a couple of the things that they insisted be removed, I still felt that I should argue the position. And I did. It didn't matter, of course, but I argued them anyway. And the thing that I thought would be most objectionable would be the couple of page expansion and explanation of how Starkiller Base actually could work. And nobody touched that. And I think it goes back to the thing about there being maybe eight people on the planet who understood the astrophysics of it. Uh, I'm not one of those eight people. But I can pull it together in a, you know, a fake form pretty good. And I think maybe somebody read that or maybe several somebody's read that and said, well, we don't understand what he's actually saying. (laughs) And if we don't understand it, nobody else will either. So it's probably fine. Let's just leave it alone. And that's what happened, and that's the part of the book I'm actually most proud of. I would take that part of the book and go up to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and be comfortable with him reading it and looking at it and saying, "No, this is okay, this could work." And on that basis, I'm happy with the book. <laughs> there, are, there are things I wish that I, you know, that they had left in that I had done, which I am not unfortunately able to talk about. But it's not my universe, you know. It's it's not. So uh, I didn't invent any of this. It's a work for hire. And as Mike says, you have to bend a little. If it's your own work and you're arguing with an editor, then you're arguing from a completely different position.
2: You mentioned Splinter of the Mind's Eye. So I was up at Lucasfilm. I, was, I did this uh, book tie-in for Han Solo. And they previewed me part of the story of the film uh, the, you know, before the film came out. And then when they hit on Mimbon, which is the planet that uh, Alan created in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. So part of Splinter of the Mind's Eye is actually in um, the new Han Solo movie. And I, I was always I was, actually I didn't get to ask you, Alan, but what, what was that like to, to have? Did you notice that? Yeah,
1: I thought that was great. That's great. Fans love that kind of thing. The minor character that you see in episode one, who becomes a prime mover in episode twenty-three, fans love that sort of thing, and I love writing that kind of thing myself. I have no objection to that. In fact, I, you know, I thought that's fantastic. Now pull something, uh, now pull something from Thrawn or from uh, one of Brian Daly's books and stick it in the next film. Um, do that. That's I love that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We talked about, you know, how the process of, of writing a novel or writing a Star Wars novel has changed over time. What about the audience? Obviously, you know, as of late, there, you know, things have been a little bit uh, tumultuous uh, post The <laughs> Last Jedi, for lack of a better uh, term. Um, how has that audience and that climate changed over time from your perspectives? And does that affect how you write about Star Wars? Mike? Uh,
2: you know, I, I, so I did The Last Jedi, uh, the young adult junior novel of that. And I I definitely received some very negative uh, comments, uh, in, in addition to some very positive comments too. But I, I hadn't been, it, you know, the whole the whole piling on the last of the last Jedi was was really uh, kind of tough to watch. And and you know, I since it's not your own story, I, 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 like like Alan knows. I know everything about this story because I'm I'm rewriting it, and I'm adapting it, I'm retelling it, and I know all the problems with it. I know it's really cool parts. I know it's you know plot holes. I know what I needed to fix. Uh, so I've I've studied this story uh, backwards and forwards, and uh, you know, and then I've I, I always look at at these these novelizations or you know they're novels. But I, I I look at the you know the plot is not mine I didn't create the plot but what I did is you know, I'm creating the characters I'm recreating the characters the characters are mine because that's these are they, they have to live on the page so uh, you know I I look at these stories as you know like these characters are very very possessive of these characters uh, so when people on the internet you know they they pile on and and I, I tend to I, I wonder. I'm like, well, you know, guys, it's it is
1: it is just
2: one film of many, and there will be many Star Wars films to come, and and there are many in in the past, and uh, it's okay if you don't like one film or the other because there's there's plenty to choose from. Uh, so that's I mean, I'm, I mean, that's how I feel.
1: Well, I'm going to be dead before there's a lot more Star Wars movies, so I can speak from a different perspective, I guess. Uh. If you're a house painter and somebody comes up to you and they say, we would like this house painted in black stripes with pink polka dots, please. And you look at this very nice house and you're not the architect and you're not the contractor and you didn't lay the bricks or do the stonework or do the wallpaper. Uh, If somebody says they want black stripes with pink polka dots, you either take the job and paint it that way or you don't take the job. You can suggest that maybe a nice beige would be good, but uh, if the owner says no, then you take the you know you, you do what the owner says or you don't take the job. And that's what when you're doing when you're working in somebody else's universe, be it uh, literary or cinematic, that's the way you have to approach it, or you don't do it. I wrote I wrote my own treatment for episode nine, put it on my website. Anybody who wants to look at that is welcome to look at that. Uh, I did it in the spirit of a fan, not a writer. You can see how, uh, see how I feel.
2: I remember you also saying you were writing a book on writing novelizations and your experience writing all these novelizations. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's called The Director Should Have Shot You. Nice. Nobody Nobody's bought it yet, but it's basically it's nonfiction. It's my history with novelizations and You know, if a major publisher doesn't pick it up, I'm sure some small publisher will. And we'll put, uh, with permission, copies of the covers in there and maybe some interior scenes that I talk about with particular, I don't want to say venom, uh, particular enthusiasm. (laughs) Uh, And you've had good experiences and bad experiences. If you're going to work uh, in any regard... Uh, with respect to the film business, those, both of those things are likely to happen, and of course, yeah, Star is in there too, and Alien and the Black Hole, and all the others.
2: Yeah, Alan did mention to me a really good uh, technique. We're talking about process that when you're working on an adaptation or a novelization, when you have the script, what Alan generally says is he says uh, for every page of of screenplay, you should have three pages of prose. So by the end of a 120-page story or script, you should have, you know, 360 pages, which is an 80, 90,000-word 80, novel. And uh, for, for a young adult or a junior novel adaptation, you actually—the the funny thing is your word count is so much less. So you have to find ways to describe, paint the scene, give the dialogue— to expand the story, get into the interior mind of the characters, uh, and do all that, and sometimes less words than the actual screenplay has. <laughs> so that's, that's the other part of the challenge. Uh, I mean, that's, and so I'm always constantly finding ways to, you know, what scene can I maybe not show or show from a different angle or just reference? And what scene can I blow out, I should say, and, and kind of expand and, and do my own thing with?
1: Yeah, there, there are places where it's easy to get your two or three pages from a page of screenplay. And then there are places where it's very hard. And you have to, the, the key is not to fall behind too far. I mean, if you're suddenly on page five and you've only got 10 of you know, the screenplay, you've only got 10 pages of prose, you need to really dig in and do some work.
0: Yeah. We talked about, you know, how Star Wars has changed and, and the climate and everything. Things like I said were have been a little tumultuous. But with episode nine coming up, as Alan mentioned, and The Mandalorian, John Favreau's working on that. Would you say that the future of Star Wars is bright? Uh, is there a new hope? I had to say it. Um for Star Wars? Mike, do you want to take this? Or yeah, I to-
2: mean, uh, <laughs> I think it's very bright. I mean, uh here's the thing, it's not gonna stop. You know? It's it it's not gonna stop now. This thing is this train is going. there's so many people involved. We live in an era of brand entertainment, which you know as somebody who also does original work sometimes is a little frustrating because yeah you're wondering where the readers are um, and how you hook new readers on new material why you know why does everything have to be associated with a a big property uh Uh, but that's kind of just storytelling in the 21st century, I guess. And to really break through the noise, uh, with an original piece and, uh, kind of these, these bulwarks of brand, it, it, it can be, it can be really hard. And and one of the great things were when Alan was starting off was there was so much in in investiture and interest in original material, um, so he, he he has, you know, an incredible how many books are in the Commonwealth series now? The 23 or 24? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he's been yeah. able to I can tell you do so much. Uh and I, I think that's a challenge we were talking about generations. That's one of the challenges uh for for new, for new writers. Um and uh and one of the things I hope that audiences are very receptive not just to read You know my Star Wars books, but to go out and read, you know, Empire of the Wolf, the graphic novel I have about uh, werewolves in ancient Rome, or or anything else, uh, and and kind of branch out to read some of Alan's original work too.
1: As far as Star Wars go, I think it's teetering. Uh, That's not to say it's going to go all Humpty Dumpty. I have a lot of confidence in J.J. Abrams. Um, I tried when I wrote my own treatment to rationalize as much as I could from Episode Eight. So that episode nine would, well, people can read it and see for themselves. But if I was Disney, what I would do at this point is I would wrap the whole original storyline up uh, with episode nine, mostly because of what happened in episode eight. And I would take the Star Wars universe and I would go off in as many different directions as I possibly could, maintaining the background and maintaining a lot of the lore uh, for two reasons. First of all, because I think episode eight screwed up a lot of stuff. There's no secret there. And second of all, it's, it's hard to get newer fans, as Mike says, interested in a property that's decades old. And people still read Sherlock Holmes with a lot of enthusiasm, but you don't see anybody building Sherlock Holmes theme parks. So uh, there's a lot of potential there, I think, in the Star Wars universe that has nothing to do with the original nine-episode Star Wars sequence. That's what i do. You really can't keep going on and on. Um, you can try rebooting it the way Abrams did with Star Trek with the original characters. I don't think that would be a good idea. Uh, but this business of being different for the sake of being different, just to show that you're clever, is something that uh, first-year film students do and get away with. But this is a mature property, and I think it needs to be treated differently. I think you can go off in different directions and do new things without. Uh, burning everything that was you know, before you. That's just my opinion.
0: Can I ask you guys about a specific character? Sure. Alright. So this character, and I'm not totally familiar if each of you have written for this character or not, but this character is a beloved character in Star Wars. There's been a lot of talk about him uh, lately, and it's because uh, the Boba Fett movie was officially recently reported as being canceled. Um, some people are saying due to the fact that there's a new Mandalorian featured in The, the Mandalorian. Um, what's your each of your relationships with Boba Fett, and did Boba Fett truly die in the Sarlacc pit?
1: So he's an interesting char- character, and I think you're sure you could do more with him. You could probably do some interesting things with people that he's associated with That's one of, as I say go off in different directions without completely abandoning the original Star Wars material, but I, uh, I never wrote him that, you know, I w- he wasn't one of the characters that I wrote, he wasn't in episode one obviously, or episode four excuse me, uh, and he wasn't in, I didn't use him in the approaching storm, and uh, that's the sort of character though that you could go off and do something different with The thing is, you have to make it different somehow. You have to make it intriguing to the audience somehow, and not just say, "Here's a Boba Fett movie," or "Here's a Mandalorian movie," or "Here's you know, Jabba the Hutt had a bad childhood, and that's the way he turned out, the way he did." (laughs) But
2: well, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's what we, you know, as as writers, as we have to have to do. We have to make things interesting, and uh, that's really the goal. If you can keep every page interesting. It doesn't really matter what you do. You just got to keep it interesting. And it's the hardest thing to do, too, as a writer.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm a, a lot less interested in, say, a character like Boba Fett than the person who hired Boba Fett and what his or her motivations were. But that's just me.
2: Right. And I, I think in terms of writing Boba Fett, I, I'm trying to remember. I think I've referenced him in, in, in books, uh, but I, I don't think I've written in his head. You know, and I, there, there hasn't been a lot of material that that has. I do have a friend, uh, Daniel uh, Keys Moran, who wrote these great Boba Fett m- novellas in the, uh, the mid 90s. They're in the Tales from Java's Palace and
0: Tales of the Bounty
2: Hunters uh, that I know uh, a lot of people Lucasfilm really like, too. So uh, those are if, if fans really want a, a good story about Boba Fett to, to read those those two stories from those two books.
0: What's the value in canon? You know, people put a lot of emphasis on what's canon, what's not. Certain things end up not being canon over time. They call them Star Wars Legends now. So do those live on? Do those, you know, exist in an alternate reality that still lives on forever? Like, would just love to get your opinions on what's canon, what's not. Yeah, well... Well, Go ahead, Mike.
2: Yeah, no, no. Canon's dead. Continue, (laughs) Ellen. That's a wonderful way to put it. Uh,
1: Canon's dead unless J.J. can find some way to resurrect it in Episode Nine. Uh, otherwise, it's dead. It's a wonderful piece of cinematic history. Everybody enjoyed it. You, you can still see the original ones. I mean, it's like if you want to write a sequel to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, you can do that and change things if you want because it's maybe the modern world and maybe the future. But the original book and the original stories are still there and will always be there for people who want to enjoy them. But uh, unless, like I say, unless J.J. J. Abrams can can resurrect canon as even interested at this point or disney is even interested at this point in resurrecting it it's pretty much uh, set in stone or carbonite if you prefer you know and we'll be we'll be there for anybody to enjoy it who wants to enjoy it and the star wars universe to move on will move on to uh, whatever disney wants to move it on to
2: yeah you know i i look at at canon i it's it's a it's a word of for religious studies, you know, it's, it's a word, uh, you know, about the, that refers to the Bible. And it,
1: these are,
2: these are made up science fiction stories, right? And it's, I think we've, we've somehow attached too much spiritual and philosophical and just personal emotion into knowing all the ins and outs of a universe that's fictional. And we need to remember that the reason we come to story is so that we can experience something new. We can learn something about ourselves, hopefully. Uh we can find an emotion or be moved in a way that we haven't been moved
1: before. And and or
2: you know learn something. Uh and I, I find that the idea of canon and continuity, I, I I understand it, and you have to do it. Uh, but I also I'm like cool with not worrying about. As, as, so so as a writer, I will focus on that and make sure everything fits in. And uh, but as a reader, that doesn't really bother me because I don't have a problem with reading you know a Star Wars story from uh, you know a comic story from Russ Manning in 19, 1979 that is totally uh, you know totally different than what, what it's like Luke delivering library books to a planet of, of school children. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm cool with that. I'm also cool with uh, reading, you know, the approaching storm and considering that within the universe of storytelling. I don't, I don't like the idea of this is right. And this is wrong. This is what really happened. And this is what didn't happen. I find, we find like as a, as an audience, as a reader, I, I want to be able to explore it all. And, and, and construct my own, you know, personal idea of canon. Uh, as a writer, I, I, I stick to canon and uh, continuity, I should say. And, I, you know, I make sure it fits. But as a reader, I, I want to enjoy it all. And I think enjoyment of story is the most important part.
1: Well, that's going to be the trick for Disney, is they're going to find out if they continue on the current path, uh, do fans and new fans, which is what they're really looking for, want to see new stuff and changes and new stories in that regard or do they miss the old stuff? And we'll find out together.
0: Well said. Um, So we can put a wrap on the star Wars side of things. As far as uh, both of your writing careers, um, how would you each compare what you sought out to do uh, writing wise with where you're at now? What do we have to look forward to, you know, from one writer to another?
1: Well, I felt that I had accomplished more than I ever hoped to accomplish and did more than I ever hoped to do when I turned 40. So I'm way ahead of the game, personally, and I'm just moseying along, having a good time telling stories. I like to tell stories. People say, why do you keep doing this? I "I like to tell stories, and I'll continue to do that as long as people uh, continue to enjoy reading them. I have no, uh, no misconceptions about writing the great American novel or even the great American science fiction novel. I've written other things as well, and I'll continue to do that too. But I'm just, I'm just having a good time playing out the game.
2: Um, I, I would say the same thing Alan does. It's, you know, it, it, how do I, how do I tell my stories, and what medium do I tell them in, and how do I, you know, find the audience?
1: And uh,
2: I, I mean, I, I wanted to do this. I knew, you know, a lot of people don't know what they want to be uh, when they grow up. I knew what I wanted to be when I was four, you know, I knew I wanted to do this as a writer and I've been, I've been writing my entire life and, um, and, you know, doing things, you know, in terms of storytelling my entire life. And that's, yeah, you know, I hope to do it till you know, the, the last day. So it's just, it's, it's always a privilege. And it's, especially to talk to somebody like Alan and, and be in conversation with him. It's to, for someone who's, Who's gone through many, many years and he's he's still he's still at the top of his game. You you see a lot of writing careers. Uh, they have a couple of books and they uh, you know you never hear from them again. And you wonder what happened to those authors. And the, the burnout rate as a writer is very high because it's such a uh, it, it commands so much of you. I think uh, of your time and your resources. And then you know the industry, the publishing industry is, is tough, just like the movie industry is too.
1: Well, it's, it's a very unnatural profession. We're a very gregarious species. We like being around, much of the time, other members of our species. And what we normally do is we get up and we go off to our daily jobs and we spend them around other people and interacting with other people. And we go home and we want to uh, have some privacy and some peace and quiet. If you're a writer, it's the exact opposite. You get up, you go out to wherever you work, and you sit there by yourself for much of the day with just your imagination and your stories. And then, at the end of the day, you kind of want to go somewhere maybe and be around people. So it's all backwards and very unnatural, and it's, it's very mentally stressful. I mean, you have, to put, you have to put down words, and they end up uh, in an audio book or in printed form that people will actually turn over some of their hard-earned money to read. That's a tremendous responsibility.
0: All right, and we asked you both uh, in each of your episodes previously when we talked to you about your one thing you've learned and one thing you'd say. I think we have to kind of ask that question again here just while we have you both on the line, and maybe you could riff off both of each other, but what, what are your thesis statements as far as, like, one piece of advice for aspiring, whether they're writers or aspiring Star Wars writers? if you had to choose one gem?
2: Well, I, I will, I will say this. I don't know what I said in the last review, <laughs> but I will say, don't, if you, look, if you want to write for Star Wars, you got to write, you, you don't just want to write for Star Wars, you know? I mean, in order to be a writer, you have to, you want to write for everything, I think. And there's, you know, um, there's just so, you have to be your own voice, and you have to have your own ideas. And I, I know, you know, I didn't get in this just to write Star Wars. Uh, I got in this because I wanted to, to tell stories. And, you know, Star Wars at one point will move on and my career will move, move on. And uh, But I I will hopefully, you know, be able to, to do something else. And I think that's really, really important. Uh, so to do your own original material, I mean, that's how you're going to get noticed. And that's what you're going to be most proud of, too.
1: If I had to give one piece of advice, whether you want to become a writer or a composer or a painter or a sculptor or a pastry chef, I'd say you have to do something. You have to do some of it every day. You cannot take a couple of days off and wait for inspiration to strike and then write something or paint something and then take another couple of days off and wait for inspiration to strike again. It's a matter of sitting down or standing up or whatever position you have to be in and doing it. Otherwise, you will never perfect your craft, you'll never get good at it, and nothing will ever happen for you. So do a little something every day.
0: There it is. My last question, if you guys came up during different time periods, if time periods you came up were swapped, would that have changed your careers, changed your writing?
1: I don't think so. Is there a squeaky toy participating <laughs>
0: in this? <laughs> 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 there there Robin, Robin uh, did you hear that? That
2: is, that is a little percy. Uh. Squeaking his his
1: squirrel toy, you know? My compliments to Percy, and I appreciate all of his interjections. (laughs) Hey, Percy. No, I don't think it can make a bit of difference. Uh, If you're a writer, for example, you're going to write what you write the way you write it, regardless of genre and regardless of time frame. I I can go back and read uh, Alexander Dumas, for example, and it's like, wow, that guy tells a really good adventure story. His characters are terrific. His descriptions of the background and the action; those are all great. And I think if Alexander Dumas was writing today uh, for something like Game of Thrones, let's say, I think he'd write exactly the same way. You are who you are, and your your ability or talent or whatever you want to call it that's what it is. I don't think that changes through time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean that's your that's your voice, right? And who yeah. knows? Uh, I mean, I I think time, you know, well, look a writer in the 60s and the 70s, they're going to be confronting different political issues, different personal issues perhaps and that's going to, you know, influence their voice and and some of their interests Uh, and the opportunities are different, by the way, too Um, I would think, you know you you see all these let's talk about the film industry, but you, you see all these incredible filmmakers just burst onto the scene in the early 70s where there was a door there for a group of people who just come out and coming out of film school to make movies, you know, Scorsese with Roger Corman, uh, Lucas under Coppola, uh, you know, and then, and then Spielberg, uh, and Brian De Palma, and, you know, all these, all these great, great filmmakers, uh, those, that, that kind of opportunity isn't the same today, that, that door of opportunity. So, uh, because of, of the way the industry works or, just how we consume media and how we consume films. Uh, in the '90s, there was the independent film uh, kind of era, and now it's it's hard for any. A lot of people don't watch independent films, which is really sad. So it, it's just you know the era does influence what you're doing, and uh, I think I, I I can't actually say how my career would be different because I'm sure the times would have would have influenced it. But I'm just living in the moment right now, and, and these are the opportunities given to me. So. I'm, making the most of
1: them. Yeah, you never know, Dickens wrote great novels, and he wrote them in chapters that were serialized in newspapers. And each one, a lot of the books had cliffhangers at the end of each chapter, so that people would buy the next installment in the next paper. And he'd probably be writing for uh, Netflix or the BBC today.
2: Yeah, so you never, without a doubt. I mean, those, those I think of those Victorian serials, you know, Great, great Expectations is perhaps my favorite book, and uh, but I, I, th- I think of those books and they're really the television show of the 1800s. You know, that's what people would do at night. They would read 30 pages of Dickens or Wilkie Collins or, or, or uh, Thackeray or whoever. Uh, and uh, that's how they would they would get their uh, storytelling fix.
1: Yep. Tune in next week, same time, same paper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of tuning in next time, we're almost at the end here. I uh, just want to quickly ask you guys, what's on the horizon? What can we expect from your own personal projects coming up.
1: Well, uh, I have a completed Commonwealth novel called Secretions, which Del Rey is perusing right now, and we'll see what happens with that. And John Betancourt at Wildside Press uh, discovered or got a hold of the manuscript, the original manuscript for uh, what we call the thing now, but which was originally called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. And uh, apparently it was a much longer novel. This is 1938, I think. There was no way to get a science fiction novel really published. So Campbell cut it down to novella size, and that's how it was published. And since the discovery of the original manuscript, John put together a Kickstarter campaign to do an anthology of sequel stories to who goes there called Frozen in Hell after the original novel title. And I'm doing a story for that, and that should be a lot of fun. Incidentally, I just reread the original novella, And what Mike was saying about how certain things change and certain things don't, the science in the story, and Campbell was very science-oriented, is pretty primitive. I mean, you really find yourself smirking at certain things. This is 1938 we're talking about, if not earlier. Uh, But the story itself reads well, because certain things like character and character motivation and physical action hold up pretty well. So that's an interesting project uh, that I'm involved with. there's some other names. I think Pamela Sargent, I read, and Bob Silverberg, um, also involved, and that's just so far. So the final anthology should be very interesting.
2: Well, that sounds fascinating, actually. I, I, I know I read when I read Burroughs uh, for the first time, maybe you know six, seven years ago. Uh, just being amazed that you know the science is, is wonky, but uh, the characters were just in the worlds were just so well-drawn and wonderful, you know, to experience. And it, it just goes to show that, you know, it doesn't really matter the the time that a, a story is written. It can still be as, as profound and, and, uh, and uh, you know, beautiful as, as it was when it was written. So...
1: Yeah, look how um, many times the Three Musketeers have been redone for another.
2: Totally. Uh, and then uh, for, for me, I'm working on a, a new... Graphic novel, uh, a comic series that I I just we're finishing up the last couple of pages with my artist. Uh, it's it's a we were talking about Sherlock Holmes earlier, Sherlock Holmes land. Well, I'm doing a, a Sherlock Holmes comic called uh, Brothers of Baker Street, and I hope that'll be out next year. Uh, and it's about Sherlock Holmes's long lost third brother that I made up. Uh, that uh, it's it's kind of an adventure story with him. And then I'm working on a bunch of screenplays here. I, I just finished a, uh, it was just published, actually, by Scholastic. I did a book called the, A Spellbinding Guide to the Films of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts. And it's, it's basically the first big guidebook to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts film series. And it, it goes through all the details of the films. Um, from genealogies to, um, names and, and objects and spells. And, uh, and doing that book was just an amazing experience of diving into another author's world and just seeing the craft of her world, world building and, and all the details has put into her books and her films. Uh, it was, it was really, really impressed. And, uh, and to have to consume all that in a short amount of time because as Alan knows, the uh, the deadlines for these license books are, are one of the things you're hired for is you you gotta finish it within you gotta have it done by tomorrow and you're like, What? What? But
0: <laughs> Yeah. All right, guys. Well I think that's it for the episode. Um super excited to have you both back. This is the first time we've done this. And, uh, yeah, I thought it was fun. It's nice uh, to give myself a break and let uh, somebody else say something more eloquent than me. But uh, thank you both. Uh, seriously, an honor and so great to have two important voices in the Star Wars world and also amazing, talented writers in your own right as well. So um, thank you so much for the time. You're most welcome.
2: Yeah, most welcome here, too. Thank you so much for having us, having us on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Definitely, and I and I hope you guys uh, will keep in touch as well.
2: I see, I'll, I'll see Alan down in Arizona sometimes, <laughs> Comic Con or, or San Diego. You know, yeah. so it's, it's nice a, to a
0: solitary profession,
2: and <laughs> really is the one thing about writing that people don't understand is it's it's very lonely. You know, it, it's a very lonely job, and your you have to be able to be okay with that. Uh, and, and also find a way to, to talk to people and, and make sure that you're, you, you get out there because uh, you know it's, it's not like any other job in the world.
0: All right. Well, uh, thanks to the internet, we all got to uh, you know break that silence and have a have some social time. So let's do this again. Cool. Uh, all right, guys. Thank you again so much, uh, and thanks to our listeners. Uh, hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer exp. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.